from the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU 91.1 FM and Brown College at the University of Virginia, this is Circle of Willis, human stories of the science that shapes our world. I don't ever really know what to tell people about funnily EG asymmetry. These days I punt and say, well, there's, there's this interesting pattern of activity. <laughs> Right, right. It's a, it's a, it's your prefrontal cortex. Where is that? Well, I put my forehead, my, you know, I put my yeah, palm yeah. on my forehead and go. As if to say, don't. Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> it's right here, and it's a pattern right here, and that pattern tells me whether or not you're going to be depressed. Mm. Really? Not really. Not really. Not really. Yeah, but what's we the hope. Sensitivity. What's the sensitivity? We think so. Yeah, yeah. right. Like you're yeah. going to tell them about that. Yeah. What year? What, what year will you get depressed? Yeah. At least one methodologist on Facebook has said to me, "Yeah, we should have abandoned that." 20 years ago so you know that that's yeah. that's what people think about, about oh, yeah. this and, uh, yeah. and, and it's got its detractors yep. yep welcome back to circle of willis i'm your host jim Cohn, and i'm joined by my producer sage tangway hello so frontal eeg asymmetry i know you were just saying in that clip that you don't know how to describe it but i did a google search and literally the top article was written by you and this episode's guest john allen So for me and the rest of your non-neuroscientist listeners, let's try to break this down a little bit. What does EEG stand for? It stands for electroencephalogram. It's a measure of the electrical activity in the brain. It's like brain waves. You've probably heard that word. We measure it by attaching electrodes all over the scalp. So this is like that old National Geographic cover with the Tibetan monk. Or, for a more modern reference, like what Eleven is hooked up to on Stranger Things as she uses her telekinesis. Yeah, it's like that. And in fact, that Tibetan monk picture from the National Geographic cover was taken at Richie Davidson's lab in Wisconsin (laughs) while I was there. So it's all very, I don't know, is incestuous the right word? That's what we're using. We're using that kind of measuring device to get these brain waves these electrical waves emanating from the brain itself, but are only recordable, capturable at the scalp. As for the asymmetry we're talking about, there's this idea that goes back to the 70s that the, the two most basic behaviors that, are, that a critter can engage in are move toward a thing or move away from a thing. Okay. That's approach and withdraw or avoid. Richie Davidson and Nathan Fox came up with this model that suggested that when you were approaching things, there was this pattern of relatively greater left prefrontal activity. And uh, when you were withdrawing from things, it was a pattern of relatively greater right prefrontal activity. Richie then associated this with risk for anxiety disorders and depression. Okay. And that caught people's attention because the holy grail of psychiatry and clinical psychology for decades has been to find the neural mechanisms of these mental disorders, these psychological disorders, so that we can create some kind of, you know, physiological medication-based lever that can just turn it off. Right. Well, I'm sure that unlike Stranger Things, this has nothing to do with using psychic children in Cold War efforts, but it still sounds like there's a little bit of controversy Let's listen back to the interview. You somewhat valiantly tried to get John to nail down a clear definition of this method, but no such luck. <laughs> when, I, when I was 
going on to set up my lab after going to grad school with you, I was nervous. I was really nervous because I thought I was going to go into set up my lab and I was going to be doing this frontal EEG asymmetry stuff and I had no idea what it meant Mm -hmm. still after all this time. Even after the big review paper uh, that we did, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, do I, I don't really, is this even approach and withdraw? I don't, you know, how how do you even describe it? Right. It even presumes it's one thing. Right. Right. I mean, I guess so. At, at the broadest sense, right, is it, is, is it something that characterizes an individual over time in a stable way? And if so, what does that mean about the individual? Is it a tendency that they're going to act in a particular way? Or is it a capacity that when confronted with a certain situation, they're going to respond in a particular way? Yeah. Um, of course, then it's also something that, you know, has a, not just this trait-like quality. It's got this ability to move around with response yeah. to our emotions. You know, yeah. so I think... It's not a unidimensional construct. God, that hurts. <laughs> God, I don't even want to think about that. That's tough. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a really important part of Circle of Willis. Sometimes this show tries to demystify science for people who aren't in the field, but other times it shows how mystified the actual researchers still are, even when they've studied something extensively, or maybe because they've done so. Yeah, you know, um, John and I have been in the weeds with this for a long time. And so by this time, we sort of share a brain. And it's one of those things like couples where they finish each other's sentences and nobody else knows what in the hell's going on. Um, John and I have that. And so I'm trying to get us to be a little slower and more explicit, but it's a... It, it's a struggle. The fact that John and I have spent so much time thinking deeply about this problem is why I wanted to do this interview. So there's a lot going on here. Now, in addition to that, John's personal story is a perfect example for me of how scientific research builds from momentum. That sometimes the path of becoming a scientist or to what you dedicate your research can be fairly indirect and winding. It's, it's a lot of wandering around in the dark. Let's take a listen. It was in the earlier half of the 80s. So yeah. um, I was an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin. My, my dad was a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And in what? In communication arts education. So he taught public speaking, he uh, coached debate, and he wrote books oh, on how to teach people how to teach people how to teach people How to teach language. people how to... <laughs> That's too many elephants <laughs> down. <laughs> yeah, so he wrote books for high school teachers on the language arts and for huh. elementary school teachers on the language arts and even for college teachers on the language oh, arts. See, that was professor at UW. We call it UW. And your mom? And my mom was an elementary education uh, major and taught uh, first graders for a year. And I don't think she enjoyed it as much as she wanted to. And then she worked in offices in secretarial positions and then was a full-time mom for the years that both me and my brother were under kindergarten age. Your, your older brother? My younger, younger brother. brother. He's almost six years younger. Six so for years. about a span of then 11 years, she was just, you know, full into raising 
the kids. Wow. And then she went back into the school system uh, under one of the title number programs to help kids with special needs and tutoring and things like that. Cool. But all along, she was um, editing and typing my dad's books. So this is before computers. This is before word processors. And my dad would write the books on but a yellow in, pad. Like in script? On a yellow you, pad you, with scratching out lines and arrows and circles yeah. and drawing and go to A and A is three pages down. And there's my yeah. mom with her old manual Hermes typewriter. And you could hear it down in the kitchen. Oh my God! You're kidding. Yep, and uh, you know you have to you have to hit the, the carriage return at the end of the line so you don't keep typing off the yeah. edge of the page. And, yeah, you know if you make a mistake, you have to get out the liquid white paper and put it on and then wait for it to dry. <laughs> yep. So. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, that's where they were. And, and when when school was out, I would go into uh, Madison often with my dad and hang out on campus. So you knew the the campus there really well. Well, I, I knew the campus from the vantage point of a twelve to fourteen year old boy who would like you know, go climb around in the rafters of the studio yeah. where the local radio station was. And, when I was a kid, friends of mine and, and, and I would sometimes go down and, into the heat tunnels underneath mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. At, at Washington State University down in Pullman, break into buildings and things like that. <laughs> but so you didn't decide to go someplace else? You wanted to stay in, in town and um, go? To, you know, this is... Never I, thought I, about I going to... I applied to college one place. I don't think at that time... You just only applied to the University of Wisconsin? Yeah. Hey, that's cool. Yeah, I applied there and... You know, it was affordable. You know, I didn't think that much about where I applied, and I really didn't think that much about, you know, what college was about. So I just rolled on into college and was at college. But I was simultaneously working over 30 hours a week as a swing manager at McDonald's. That's the official term. Oh, yeah, it yeah. It didn't denote a lifestyle. Oh, right. It yes, denoted yes, of course. you'd swing shifts, you'd do different <laughs> shifts. Right? Sadly. Yeah, right. It yeah. could have been much more Could exciting. have been much more interesting. When did you start managing McDonald's? The day I turned 18. Two weeks later, then that's I a responsible st- position for an eighteen-year-old. I knew that you had done work at McDonald's, but I didn't realize that you were that young at yes. the point where you're managing. That was actually occupying a good amount of my time and my attention. Plus, good friend from going back into elementary school had a band, uh-huh. and uh, they had some sound equipment. And this interested me greatly, and so I started doing sound mixing for his band. His guitar player, Lenny. 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 Well, re- Lenny's name was Mark, but his last name. <laughs> Was Lenny's a better band? Was name. Len something with a ski on the end? Yeah, so he just it's got called Lenny. Much, much better. Yeah. So Lenny showed me a few things, and from there I just took off and wow. Eventually bought my own board. Sixteen. You did sixteen, 16 channel channels? Kelsey Pro Three mixer. Wow. Yeah. And that's uh, a, an expensive piece of equipment. Well, it is. I bought it with a settlement from a motorcycle accident. <laughs> <laughs> so motorcycle accident. Pre or post 18? <laughs> post 18. <laughs> so you're managing at McDonald's. So you're ma- going to school at UW. You get in a motorcycle accident. What happened? So back before Ticketmaster had any online presence, because there was no online presence, you'd uh-huh. go to Ticketmaster to get your tickets, and it was at the Sears store. So I was riding my motorcycle around the periphery of the East Town Mall, <laughs> going to get tickets for REO Speedwagon, <laughs> which should have been a clue that this was a bad idea in the first place. <laughs> That I loved you forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. got it's it. It's time for me to fly. Yeah. <laughs> I've been around for you. I've been up and down for you. I can't get any relief. <laughs> a 60-something woman and her 80-something-year-old mother who pulled out from a yield sign. I wasn't experienced enough on the motorcycle. I couldn't stop. I clipped their bumper, and I went flying off. Broke a oh, collarbone, man. but I was fine. I was wearing a helmet. And Broke your collarbone doesn't count as fine for me. Well, okay, so my head was fine. Your head was fine. My head good. was fine. I was yeah. fine enough to string a series of expletives together to scream at the 65-year-old lady. Nice. Yeah. That's good. And mm-hmm. not many people have necessarily done that. 
You got you had you got you saw your opportunity and you took it. <laughs> I took. <laughs> I guess God struck me down with her and sent some guardian angel to come like whisk me off to the side, a bicyclist, and the woman sat with me until the ambulance came. Uh, so well, it's good because you got your settlement and got you, my settlement, you bought your you bought a soundboard. Bought my soundboard, and then I was at that point too busy to think about going back to school. So, so I, you dropped out. I finished my spring semester, so I had a you know I, I was in good standing and I just didn't return. Um, which, as you might imagine, wasn't particularly popular with a professor father. Yeah. Right, right, right. I mean, did they pressure you? Well, not overtly. Yeah. But it was they, clear. They, they did it the Midwestern way. Yes. Oh, well, that's okay, I guess. It's like, I'll yeah. just sit over here and eat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not, not quite, you know, don't worry about me, I'll sit in the dark, but it's... Uh, it's something along something those lines. Something along those lines. So, so you it's took like, some well, time. Well, one of these days, I'm sure you'll get your, your life together. <laughs> <laughs> So I yeah. took some time off, and yeah. uh, I, I did sound, and, um, you know, McDonald's worked fine for me. I got promoted to salaried manager position, second assistant, first assistant, and uh, as part of this, they enroll you in what's known as Hamburger University. Hamburger University. University. And I went through <laughs> basic operations <laughs> course. I went through intermediate <laughs> operations course. And in, you know, at this point, a couple of years in, and a couple of years out of school and a couple of years into this program, you know, working most of the time just in the store, but going to these, you know, weekend and week-long courses, um, they started talking about my career development. And, and you like... That just sent yeah. a shiver down my spine. Because what do they mean by that? Well, they mean thinking about, you know, what what's your trajectory within the McDonald's Corporation? How so high are you going to go? How high are you going to go? Are you So you can be your store manager, and then you can be a supervisor for multiple stores, and then there's routes for, you know... So right now, you could be, like, on the on the corporate board... For McDonald's, if, in theory. If I hadn't died you, of a heart attack you, from eating all the food. All the food. Right. Or, but anyway, they started talking about my career development, and I realized I had never thought of this as a career, and it ultimately wasn't that satisfying. Plus, uh-huh. doing sound with bands and getting home late, and then sometimes having a shift that started at 4 or 5 in the morning to do you know inventory or uh, month-end stuff. Oh, man. Um, I almost with, got fired. With bands, that would yeah, be a I almost got fired because I, I was late a few times. Oh, yeah. And then the store couldn't open. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at that point, I decided I'd go back to school in McDonald's. Um, <clears throat> part of this Hamburger University is you could all, you could get your degree through the Oak Brook accredited program. You could also, though, get credit from regular universities towards this. And so I told them I'd like to go back to the University of Wisconsin. And since I left in good standing, I could come back. And so the first semester, um, I looked at you know what would be interesting, and I um, saw psychology sounded kind of interesting. Now, when I was there before, I was taking you know calculus and computer science and stuff like that. Yeah. And, philosophy, you know, general ed stuff. And then nice. I thought, well, psychology sounds good. And they had one that was at five in the afternoon. So I could go no matter what shift I worked unless I was working the closing shift at McDonald's. They had a, wait, they had a what at five in the afternoon? They, introduction to psychology introduction course. At, 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 uh, wow. A 500 person course. That's great. At five in the because afternoon. Because that would never happen at yeah. UVA. There would never be an introductory course. At yeah. five in the afternoon. It was a huge lecture hall, 500 plus people. And I had the good fortune of being taught by Steve Sumi, who You're is a primate kidding. researcher. Do you know Steve Sumi? Of course. Yeah. He's he phenomenal. He's teaching introductory psychology. Teaching intro psychology. So Jesus this Christ. was before people knew the word biopsychosocial perspective, but he was he was he was showing that. us the biopsychosocial perspective because of his yeah. work with primates at all levels. Oh, yeah. for God's sake. And I thought, oh, this is good. I, sh- I should do this for a major. And that was that started well, me down the that path. that was a charmed beginning. That so. was a stroke of pure good luck. Yeah. It really was. And it set me down this career path. So that gets us back now that we've had that little side tour to the story the of story EEGA, of EEGA symmetry, symmetry, which got which brought to Which is like an, an imponderably obtuse. 
<laughs> Which might be why the interview is imponderably. That's why we're wandering around. So EEG asymmetry, you encounter yeah. this as an undergraduate. I had been working with the Chapmans, Lauren and Jean Chapman, studying risk for psychosis. Mm. And while I was there, they That's hired right. a new faculty member, Richie Davidson. And uh, so when I was first working in Lauren's lab, I think in 83 or 84, Richie wasn't there. And Richie came there in 85. In fact, this was another stroke of good luck. I delayed my graduation by a year. I, I was in such a hurry to get out. You know, you get back to school, you're older yeah. than the other students. I want to get through, yeah. I want to get out. I'm what are these kids? I'm three years these old kids these kids. Are- <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, Lauren was talking to me, Lauren Chapman, and I realized, you know, I, I can take some extra courses. Lauren let me take one of his graduate courses. So Richie shows up. So Richie shows up. In a blaze of glory, no doubt, right? Well, you know, um, blaze of fireworks, the cartoon image of Richie is that as he walks down the hall... There's a blur behind him because he walks so fast. And he so does. everywhere he went, he walked with purpose. Yes, right? he does. Before he could, people he talked could about knock being, down brick walls. Before people talked about being mindful, there was purpose. And Richie walked with purpose. And he walked to his office with purpose. And he walked to his lab <laughs> with purpose. <laughs> and there he was. And he had so much energy and so much enthusiasm. But really what got me, I was sitting there in Lauren's lab. And they start moving in all of this stuff to his lab. Like, yeah. My lab had piles of paper. Yeah. And number stamps so that you could stamp the questionnaires, each with its own number, and the yeah. number stamp would automatically yeah. advance. That was high tech yeah, yeah, for yeah. my lab. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Richie's lab had knobs and buttons oh, yeah. and wires. And, oh, and, man. That and it stuff was, is intoxicating. You know, it was like... I love that Like crap. being a teenage boy, oh, and the man, guy next door brings a hot car and opens the hood. Yep. It's like... Oh, mm, I got to go take a look yeah, at that. Yep, yep. <laughs> so I went over and I started talking to Cliff Saren. Cliff! He was with Richie at SUNY Purchase, and I don't know if he was with Richie before then, but anyway, I went over and, and Cliff shows me the lab, and you know, he says, hey, we're setting it up, you know, we, we need to pilot it out, you want to try it? And so I got yeah. my EEG recorded and never did get any results, but... You're just right on the spot, you got, you, you got uh, EEG recorded The next from day me. I came back and he hooked me up back. and showed me some... And what kind of system did they have? And what were they recording EEG with? They, I think they had a grass polygraph, and there was a ton of Coburn equipment in there. Spools of paper? Uh, I mean, paper, no, it wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't recording into a computer system, right? Paper was really not so useful. So the, the outputs, um, the little, you know, small voltage outputs from each amplifier, each of those wires would go into a Coburn module and feed into another Coburn module, another Coburn module. And each Coburn module was like a function that we would use now in MATLAB. So they would filter the data, they would integrate the data, wow. they would rectify the data. They were running it through multiple fil- filters yeah. Yes. And then it, I, think, I think it came out on little strips of paper. So you get things like you know alpha power or alpha power density uh, on this little strip of paper over time. Because now we run all these like spectral analyses right, and right. FFTs and things. You wouldn't be able to do that. No, no. I think they, they filtered, bandpass filtered it. Bandpass right. filtered. So you got 8, eight, to, 13 eight hertz, to 13 hertz. And then you could integrate and rectify and they, it. And, and, yeah, and then they yeah. just measure the, measure the, amplitude. the amplitudes. Yeah. Right. Christ. Right. Wow. So <clears throat> since I was there a fifth year and I was working in the lab, I got to know a lot of the graduate students and they were all just saying, oh my God, Richie's going to be teaching this psychophysiology course. And I'm thinking, wow, that sounds Psycho Psychophysiology. That's pretty in- amazing. That's better than ordinary physiology. It's <laughs> psychophysiology. <laughs> and um, so I camp out at Richie's door and I said, you know, hey, I'm really, I, you know, <clears throat> pulled out the Lauren card. <clears throat> I work with Lauren Chapman. 
And <laughs> it would be really good if I could take this course. <laughs> and he hemmed and hawed a bit, and he didn't know who I was. But sure enough, um, my persistence, and I don't know if any help from Lauren was involved, but I got to take his course. I think I was the only undergraduate who got to take this course. So Lauren twisted Richie's arm? Or? I'm think, I, I don't know that he did, but I can't imagine that Richie would have just like seen me, not known me from Adam, and just let me into this course because it was already overloaded. We, were, we really? packed this room. We were way overbooked for this room. Wow. Yeah. And it was, a, you know, it's a big class and psychophysiology has a lab component that um, Andy Tamarkin and Marie Balaban ran. Wow. Yeah. These names, they, they, these names exist for me in this literature, you know, that I've been yeah. reading forever. They're real people. I know. I, it's, <laughs> I, that's the thing about science is that you read enough of the literature and, and you read enough of one person's papers and they invariably become kind of celebrities to you. Yes. I get tongue-tied. Right. And then you meet them and you go, oh, you know, I thought you were like seven feet tall and 65 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. But that's where I first encountered it. And then, you know, I, I didn't think at that point I'd be a frontal EEG asymmetry researcher, but I went off to graduate school with the idea that I would use psychophysiological measures to try to index risk for psychopathology, including, and maybe most focused on, schizophrenia. Oh, because so you of the were really because of Lauren. Exactly. I was yeah. very, I was fascinated with schizophrenia. You know, it's it's a um, just a devastating disorder. It's got yeah. you know symptoms that are really hard to wrap your head around. And you know, at this time, you know, we understood there was a genetic basis, but you know, we hadn't mapped the human genome. We didn't understand all these complexities. So we were trying to tackle it from kind of a psychological and psychophysiological perspective. Yeah. So I applied to programs where this would be an option and. Um, I ended up going to the University of Minnesota and worked with Bill Iacono. And although I worked right. on some of his schizophrenia data, um, that's not where I spent most of my time. I got interested in doing other things. And we had a chance to study seasonal affective disorder because you know, oh, Minneapolis yeah, is a, yeah. a good long way from the equator and they have a really short winter day. Yeah. And during the short winter day, people who are at risk get seasonal affective disorder. You know, Bill was great as an advisor because he he didn't have anything that I had to do. He wanted me to do things that, you know, were scientifically interesting and meaningful to me yeah. and he supported me in them and so <clears throat> we got into some of the work on seasonal affective disorder where i brought in my interest in frontal eeg you did you did eeg so he had an eeg system there yes. already yeah we had four channels four channels yeah. <laughs> god <laughs> you guys so we were living large yeah uh -huh. and and you found that people who were at risk for seasonal affective disorder showed a pattern of relatively greater right frontal activity. That would be the inference. That'd be the inference, right. because what you really find, this is where it becomes so impossible at parties. What it really is, is they, they show less alpha over the right frontal cortex, meaning more activity over the right frontal cortex. Right. That's relative to, to the relative left Relative to the left. Yes. It just goes but, on but and the on. Reason it we, never stops. The reason we say the inference is at risk is because we got them in the depth of their episode the first week of January when uh -huh. they're seriously depressed uh -huh. before they started bright light treatment. We got them again three weeks later after three weeks of bright light treatment. Uh -huh. So symptomatically at the beginning, they're clinically depressed and symptomatically three weeks later, they're in remission. Yeah, I mean the Hamilton Depression rating scale scores are down in the range under five. Oh my so god! That, I mean it's it's not just a response; it's remission. Yeah, this is an interesting commentary for psychological and psychiatric intervention. You know, most of the time we get responses, but we don't often get remission. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah, with seasonal yeah. affective disorder, since it's a fairly you know circumscribed 
you know. It's a perfect yeah. thing to study, really. Right. So we have people in episode. We have people out of episode, separated by three weeks. We get EGA symmetry at both times. And we have seasonal affective disorder patients and matched controls. Yeah. And we find that at both times, the seasonal affective disorder patients differ from the controls. Okay. So it's not state dependent. Right. It seems to be a, a characteristic trait. of it's the person. It's a risk marker, right? perhaps, potentially. Potentially a risk marker. I mean, yeah. we, we, nobody's really no, investigated right. carefully. Is it a residual scar of having yes, had depression? Right, right, right. So that right. depression so you need to do the prospective thing that's so hard right. to do. Are you listening, NIH? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, NIH. <laughs> Settle the question for crying out loud. Yeah. So you, you didn't know for sure it was a marker, but it was, it was definitely associated with, with this risk. Yeah. It, it, yeah. You know, it was a promising marker. We'd yeah. Say, a promising marker of risk. That was my master's study. That was your master's yeah. study. Maybe not for you, but <laughs> this happens so... I see this yeah. so much that people's master's is like, wah, and then their dissertation, they're like... Your dissertation uh, Your dissertation's now in version 3.0 or 4.0, still dealing with Minnesota twin data. We just yeah. have different players coming oh, in and working geez. on it. Uh, no, my, my dissertation was using event-related potentials as an index of memory that doesn't depend on people telling us they remember something, like a lie detection oh, protocol. Okay. Apply, also applying it to studying post-hypnotic recognition amnesia. So I, I, I hypnotized lots of people. That's weird. I know. I hypnotized 800 people and maybe 100 responded. Really? Well, it's an individual difference. Hip- hypnotizability is an individual difference. and Suggestibility. Well, waking suggestibility is correlated with hypnotic suggestibility, yeah. but they're not synonymous constructs. Yeah. yeah. And it's not Somehow I've gotten all through my career and I still don't understand hypnosis very well. I think the field ultimately came to that. You know, it was a, it was a really hot topic in the '80s, which is when I was doing my yeah. uh, dissertation research. And the field, I think, got to the same point of like, well, okay, some of the effects are real; they're not just demand characteristics, and it's certainly not stage hypnosis. And you know, it, it can be useful for pain mitigation and altering perception and helping focus study skills. But <clears throat> I think theoretically, people just burned out on it because of the question of you know, at what level are we trying to explain it? What's the yeah. what's the theoretical question? And so. You know, like many topics, it rises on a wave and then it Yeah, yeah, that's a thing. Yeah. Well, that's part of why I'm still grudgingly fascinated with EEG asymmetry. It has it survived. It has somehow, survived. it's still here. Yes. It's still And you know, here. part of the reason, and this isn't a good reason, is that it got mapped almost in a one-to-one monolithic fashion that... Approach is left relative left frontal, yep. and withdrawal is relative right frontal. Yes, yep. and you know, as a spokesperson for the field, when Richie came out with that theoretical perspective, at, at the time it was, I think, a reasonable perspective. But it became so easy for people now to treat EEJ symmetry as synonymous with this psychological construct, and yep. a fairly broad psychological construct at that. And it, what is approach? So, well, what right. is withdrawal? And yeah. is it context specific? And there were all kinds of questions that people could have worked on. To but pick it, it solves apart. the party problem. It does. It right? solves it. You know. So here's the thing: if yeah. you're this way, you do that, and if you're that way, you do this. People love the the uh-huh. the the different hemisphere. Yes. You know, are you right brained or left brained? Kind of thing. Yes. That's that's an easier explanation than frontal EEG asymmetry, and we don't really know what it means, but it might put you at risk for mm-hmm. bad things. Yes. Although, on the other hand, I'm I'm quite reluctant to start going down the path of right brain, left brain with people because it makes it sound yeah. like... No, I, I, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't go anywhere near that. Yeah. Yeah. You went to Arizona and got a 
big new shiny EEG system. I did. I had 32 channels. 32 channels. That's amazing. It wasn't even the standard grass polygraph because I think they had a 16 channel. I remember model. that thing. Yeah, it still sits there. Set it up the thing with the Remember you and I the, would the we plastic would, stick. Yep, the, whatever that, selector, that the, the selector, selector stick. I'm glad it had a name. And I and and, and I and it's alarming that I'm only now learning what the name of it was. It was the I thing. just knew it was the thing that you pushed the stuff in to make the brain go. That was that's the extent of my Do you remember you and I taking all of the in each of the 32 amplifiers out? Blowing compressed yes, air across the contacts, <laughs> hooking it up to an oscilloscope, and then we calibrated it. We had to calibrate first of all the mean, yes. the mean offset, and then the amplitude. The then ampli- go back to the mean uh, offset, then back to the amplitude until that thing was centered yeah. on zero, and that five volts plus and minus really yeah. looked like five volts. That's plus when minus. the teenage shiny stuff under the hood stuff comes crashing back down to earth. The reality yeah. is, you got to pay a lot of attention to a lot of very minuscule little aggravating details yes yes and i think i think i, had to, have to, I think i had to use you have a much better temperament for that than i do i think i just motivated you with tacos and beer that's we do this always what we works. get tacos and beer that is the thing that works my my grad students even know that yeah <laughs> tacos and beer really want something done yeah <laughs> So, so you got the, <laughs> I got the shiny system. You got the shiny system, <laughs> the best, awesome system. Thirty-two channels, not great. Sim- simple four channels of crap. You're, you're, this oh. is the real deal. This is the real deal. Yep. And, yeah. And it, it digitized. And, and it's digitized. It's yep. recording into onto hard drives. Yep. This was the first time that there was not an analog backup. Everything I'd done in the lab. An analog bills. backup meaning paper, tape, tape. It was a special, oh magnetic tape. It, it was a special tape recorder that, in addition to the I think it was four or eight tracks. So each one was a channel of psychophysiology. It had a special calibration track. Uh-huh. And this put in a known signal. And so at playback, if there was any deviation in the frequency of that known signal, it would know to slow down or speed up to compensate. Really? Because, you know, tapes would stretch. Yeah. Right? So you, you imagine you got your psychophysiology data. Wow. Your EEG data. You're, you're, you're counting on millisecond precision. Yeah. And now your tape stretches. Oh, forget it. Right? You'd be toast. So this calibration track was in there. And, uh, and it was interesting because one time I put the tape in backwards, got to listen to the calibration track, and it was like something out of a... An old, um, you know, horror movie. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but you didn't a, use this then. No, you didn't I just use the, I digitized and you, you digitized. That was ballsy. Well, I digitized at a high sample rate with wide open filters, figuring okay, that way this is as close to that analog tape recording as possible. Yeah, um, you're gonna ne- you're gonna deal with all the filtering and stuff on the other on, on the, other, the back end. Ne- networks didn't exist, so we had worm drives. Worm drive. So when when is this? This is 1993, 1992, 93. 90, 92. And worm, worm drives. drives were right once. Yeah. Read many. I, at that, that at that time I was working in the Gottman lab up in Seattle and we had these big giant Bernoulli yes. drives that were Yes. I can't even remember how that. It seems they're absurdly small. Yes. Uh, but they were huge. They were too small for the EG. That's why I got yeah. the worm drives. Yeah, I see. Now, a few years later, we could write CDs, but this was the technology at the right. time. Yeah, yeah, the CDs didn't happen until I had been there for a while. 97, and I don't think writable CDs were available till even closer to 2000, at least not routinely. Yeah. And, Isn't that incredible? Yeah. And now you just... I'm, I, I remember in, at the University of Washington, there was <clears> one <throat> place in the hospital that had this special machine where you could write a CD. 
and it was incredible. And you'd have to reserve it in the middle of the night. You'd go up there at mm-hmm. 10, 10 o'clock at night, and I'd come in with my Bernoulli drives. Mm-hmm. And I'd pl- <laughs> plug the Bernoulli drives <laughs> into the cartridge holder and, brrr, and burn the CD. And just, mm-hmm. I, was, I was about to beam up to the Enterprise, man. You got your whole career has a history of going into places with technology <laughs> late at night. Yeah, I know because <laughs> that's what it is. That's what this life is. There those is a of part you, of being a scientist. Those of right, you that, not sure whether right. you're going to do it, mm-hmm. right? When that equipment's not being used during the day, then we can go futz with it and set yeah. it up for our purposes. And right. Bring our drills. And uh, run when our it's not doing, when it's not doing useful things, right. we're going to make it do things that might hopefully be useful someday. Right. That you can't tell <laughs> with a little luck. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so so you're you're there and you start doing. You, were you were you intending to do more EEG asymmetry work at that? It point? It wasn't first and foremost on my mind. No, I started out when I first got there. I was continuing to do some work with ERPs and memory, and oh, event related potentials, event related brain potentials in memory. Yeah, the kind of lie detector work. I yeah. was doing some monitoring how the brain responds to things. Yeah, I started doing hypnosis screening, and it was fortunate John Kilstrom was there at the time, and uh-huh. he was con- he was also interested in hypnosis. So <clears throat> some of his was research- he sort of interested in debunking it in some way. Well, I think. Um, you know, he and I were of a like mind that there, there's a real phenomenon there, but we need to kind of understand what it is and what yeah. the mechanisms are and what the limits are and, you know, Got make it. sure it's not demand characteristics and yeah, so on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And ultimately how how phenomena like dissociation may relate to hypnotizability. And, and we're not talking about, um, you know, the controversy about things like dissociative identity disorder, but think of the normal range of dissociation that people can experience. Yeah. yeah. So we started doing hypnosis screening and I did some studies. Um, those... Those were a lot of effort, and ultimately I got more interested in doing work again on depression. There was the call for proposals from the Office of Alternative Medicine. Okay. That was there then? That came out in the spring of 93. Oh, I didn't know that. I I thought that came much later. No, that was the end of my first year as a faculty member, and um, the, the spouse of the first student I admitted, David Schneer was my first student. Oh, and Rosa. Rosa Schneer. She yeah. was an acupuncturist, and we were having oh, lots of conversations yeah. about what is acupuncture, what does it do? And I said, yeah, we, you know, we're thinking it would be fun to you know, bring people in and put needles in them and look at the <laughs> evoked response. You know, I was thinking about something like, you know, could we do pain <laughs> modulation, deliver acupuncture in real points, fake yeah. points, and yeah. you know, just, just do something simple like that. And then this call came out to look at um, alternative treatments, and they were specifically designed to foster collaboration between conventional researchers and practitioners of alternative medicine. Okay. And I showed this to Rosa, and she got very excited, and I got yeah. excited. And <clears throat> we realized pretty quickly we needed to do something useful, so we thought about a treatment trial for depression. And then I realized I went to Minnesota. I learned nothing about treatment. It was the best graduate education yeah. for understanding psychopathology and risk Dust for psychopathology and experimental methods and psychopathology. behavioral genetics and psychophysiology. Yeah. And I had a toolbox, yeah. and I could attack any problem except... Studying interventions. Yeah, yeah, got it. So I went down and you know, on Varda's door. Said, "Hey, Varda, really? You know something about interventions?" Yeah. Varda shares her grant with me. Varda starts meeting with me and Rosa. I had a I had a three month postdoc with Varda. Unbelievable. She she was like I I didn't have an official postdoc, but if I had to say on my academic history, I had a postdoc with Varda for three months while Rosa and I designed that study. I'll be damned. And I didn't know that. she was a damn good postdoc advisor. We got the grant, and we were able to study acupuncture as a treatment for depression. For depression. And that's a whole story unto itself. But it got me back into bringing psychophysiology in to study people with 
major depression. And, and what psychophysiologic? Did, did you apply the the asymmetry me- yes. me- measure? That's how that so that was the doorway back into that. Was that was the doorway measure. back in. So we we had depressed patients coming in. They were going to be uh, coming in for either three sessions across two months or five sessions across four months. In other words, they'd, they'd go pre and then a month after a month get an assessment, after a month get an assessment. Some of the patients went for two months and some went for four yeah. months. So we had 38 women, and they were assessed either three or five times each. Yeah, We had a, a negligible dropout rate. So I had a very clear data set, no, no, no control group, but a very good opportunity to look at the stability yeah. of EEG asymmetry yeah. over nice. time. A, oh, that's a theme good. In so the another research. theme, yeah. Um, the extent is this to, a reliable phenomenon? Is it a reliable phenomenon? In, you know, we could look at internal consistency. We looked at temporal stability. We looked at temporal stability despite changes in symptoms. We looked at whether to the extent that there are changes in asymmetry, are those changes related to changes in symptoms? You know, about 60% of the variance is stable trait variance to the extent that it changes session to session. You found that then? Yeah. Well, I I analyzed that part years later, but... Got it. mm -hmm. To the extent that asymmetry changes and symptoms change, those two changes are unrelated. Wow. So it's not that asymmetry just, you know, is part of the response of getting well. So this is like 94. Well, we got the grant in 94. We completed in 96, yeah. Yeah. I I remember at that time... Just starting to read Richie's papers before mm-hmm. I applied to to go to graduate school at Arizona because mm-hmm. yeah, Richie was one in the of the people of that I applied to. Yeah, right, when we were right. doing, yeah. we were finishing up recruitment on that. Yeah, study. yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, I I was at that time, as you remember, uh, I don't know what I was interested in. I was out of my mind. But the but I, the, I recall I you were interested in everything. I was interested in everything and out of my mind. But but I but I remember the 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 the, the main thing that I was interested in is is emotion mm-hmm. and emotional expressions and and so so in addition to this this uh EEG asymmetry is serving as a potential marker of risk for things like seasonal affective disorder or depression or a marker of recovery or mar- you know a prognostic mm-hmm. indicator whatever it is yeah. uh, you know in in some kind of trait like fashion but the, the the idea that it was that it gave us an index of of the motivational properties of different emotions it really gave me this feeling that motivation and valence were two separate axes. And it seems obvious now, but I'd never really thought of it before. Right. That joy and anger looked more similar with this in this metric of EEG right. asymmetry than anger and sadness or anger and fear did. Right. That blew my mind. It taught me all kinds of things, like instantaneously, like a thunderclap about anger. Right. And also, I don't know about you, but it, it made me think... Once again, introspection may not be the best route for scientific knowledge. Yep. Right? It's like, introspectively, you think, all of these emotional states, tell me I want to terminate them. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I, yep. I want to get rid of them. I don't want them to be prolonged. Yep. And, you know, amusement, contentment, happiness, joy, that valence. That's fine. Let's keep that going, right? Yeah. And yet, you know, in terms of the brain systems here... Anger's pretty it, motivating. Right. Thinking about the the next big moment... We had this huge depression study that um, Stephanie Reed and Lisa Duke and I had done where we were all set to, you know, have the biggest study to date on, you know, depression and EJ symmetry. Yeah. We found nothing. 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 You know, Dirk Hageman was having similar issues with replicating <laughs> effects, and we were having issues with replicating effects, and we invited John Cassiopo for a colloquium. Okay. And I was his host. Talk about good fortune. Yes. So I got to spend a few days with John Cassiopo. And, um, He'd have been very keen to know whether this was not replicated. He was really interested. And he was the editor of Psychophysiology. And he said, 
you've got to write that up. Do you know about Dirk Hageman's failure to replicate at that time as well? I think John was the one who turned me on to it. And then I think I didn't meet Dirk until shortly before his article came out when he was presenting those data. I happened to walk up as Richie's at Dirk's poster. Ah, <laughs> and Dirk is back when we all Dirk gave is posters. Unfazed. Yeah, and no, just, he's unfazable. He's, he's just saying, it's not true. It's not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Richie's like, well, but did you do this? And did you do this? And did you yep. do this? And, Dirk, and Dirk's like, it's just not there. <laughs> yeah. But John Cassiopo, I was lamenting to John Cassiopo. I was like, you know, I'm a, a, a new assistant professor and, you know, I've got these graduate students and I got them both going down this path and the data haven't replicated. Yeah, and, and I wasn't so I've much concerned. I hadn't lives. yet been thinking about, oh my God, I won't get tenure. Although that was probably in the back of my mind. I was worried about their careers. Sure. And John Because they put a lot of time into it. A ton of time. Yeah. Patient recruitment. Right. That's not Mm. trivial stuff. Graduate students are are nervous for a good reason. So, you know, I said, so what are we going to do with that? John says, you've got to publish it. Yeah. And I said, but where? He said, send it to me. Psychophysiology. And then he told me about Dirk. Which, which, by the way, for people who don't know, if you're publishing a paper like this in psychophysiology, I mean, especially at that time, this is, for those kinds of data, this is pretty much the top. Yes, it the was the top a, sort of right. intellectually regional journal. This is the top journal. Yes. This is the one. Right. I was honored. I was shocked. But I, I talked to Stephanie and Delisa, and we got busy and we wrote it up. Yeah. And we, we renamed it at that point once we learned that we could publish it. Yeah. Lemons. <laughs> <laughs> we were making oh lemonade. We were making lemonade out of this because we Good. thought it was a lemon. I love it. Yeah. So, lemons, that's the data set. <laughs> lemons. <laughs> So John worked with us, yeah, and and then Derek was, you know, an exacting scientist. He went on to do a lot of good yep. work with asymmetry yep. as well. So why didn't you kill frontal EEG asymmetry? Why didn't it uh, just come? You know, I'm thinking yeah. about. I mean, honestly, yeah. I don't want to get too far into this, but these yeah. days, yeah, why with all the, the the conversation about replicability and all this right, stuff, right. this is what came up on that Facebook conversation I was telling you about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I br- I brought up this this old failure to replicate, and he's like, yeah, he basically insinuated that that's where it should have stopped. Should have stopped there. So, yeah. first of all, why why didn't it, and, and why shouldn't it have? Why didn't it for me or for the field? For for the field and for you. Because, you know, yeah. I remember now, now what it was like to be pre-tenure, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you invest a bunch of resources in a thing. And, you know, frontally, you know, any EEGA symmetry study is a huge pain in the ass. Yes. Right? Yes. And and it was much more so then. Right. It's better now that you dump all yeah. the dra- data on one drive. Yeah, but and, back then, yeah. you were, you could easily toss two years of your life down right. the drain. Just to analyze eight minutes of resting data took eight hours. Yeah. We, right? we'd, have, we'd have the sign on the computer, do not yep, disturb. Don't, I remember. Yeah, yeah you flipped yeah. the sign down. Yeah, yeah, it was the same thing when I was doing yeah. uh, peripheral physio at, with the Gottman lab. Yeah. You know, was, you'd mm-hmm. run it overnight. Right. So I think part of the reason it didn't die was that the idea was still very attractive in people's minds, and especially the framing that Richie had put forth, that it's approach and withdrawal motivation. Yeah. This was all very appealing theoretically to people. Um, we were still smack dab in the time when the, the key question was lateralization, not yet localization, right? Yeah. Um, fMRI was just coming on board at that point. Right. So, so that got a lot of people in the field interested. And, and for me personally, uh, you know, I'd invested a few different studies, including, you know, work with Eddie and so on. And, and then I kept teaching psychophysiology, and I must have uh, conveyed a certain enthusiasm for this idea, despite my admitted skepticism, that got students interested, and they wanted to do studies. Yeah. And so they kept doing studies, and 
And then how was it? You and I got we, the idea to propose the, the GEEG study. Yeah, the big definitive, we we're going to solve the, the whole problem. definitive study. Well, I mean, for me, the thing also was that I had come into graduate school there, and I remember very vividly the conversations about this failure to replicate because mm-hmm. it weighed heavily on my mind because mm-hmm. I, th- I thought I was a crazy person mm-hmm. to do this mm-hmm. some nights. I yeah. thought this was a really dumb idea. Yes. But yeah, you know, I got that NSF grant and we were to doing do asymmetry, ex- asymmetry, yeah, asymmetry see, so with there, facial expressions. This is you know, part of it like, too, that there's like a machine oh, that starts rolling, I right? Gotta do Jim this gets now. the NSF grant and students are interested and there's these studies going on and it just keeps on rolling. Yep. Right? It does. But and it I'm with you. I there there were nights where I thought the next paper I'm gonna write will be entitled Why I No Longer Do EEG Asymmetry yep. Research. Yep. I have this memory that we were reasonably confident in the state effects. Yes, uh, yes. You could get the you could get these state effects. But there was the depression the association with depression and all and that. And the stuff. individual difference variables that and were more of a bugaboo. That's right. So you and I really buckled down psychometrically. We did. On this. We did. And then um, this coincided with your writing the paper for your comprehensive exam that we got invited <laughs> to, to submit that right, chapter. That so chapter. we said let's 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 work on the this big review. paper to you know, after you do this, we'll work on this paper, we'll yeah. get it in, and then we developed version two point for the special issue yep. in two thousand and four. Yep. Which, you know, we said, well, there's a whole lot here. There's some signal. I think we convinced ourselves that there could be some signal. Right, because when you did that a big review, you see so much, so many people. But, you know, we were, we were, I was seriously stressed out about the file drawer. It yes. seemed, you know, we didn't have right. a lot of the, you know, some of the, at least the putative tools that we're, people are developing today to, 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 right. to look into that. But I knew about it. Right. So, so we did the, we got the grant. We got the Too grant. Too late. Well, for me, yeah, because we I we wanted wrote, to get the grant. I mean, we wrote you in as a honestly, postdoc, right? Right, and and I would say forty percent. Uh, am I that? Am I that virtuous? Forty percent of my motivation was to answer the question, <laughs> and the other was tacos and beer in Tucson. Tacos and beer in Tucson. <laughs> I was I was definitely one of those people that was susceptible to sad in the Midwest and not susceptible to sad uh-huh. in Tucson. Yeah. I loved. Tucson. Holy yeah, the timing shit. the timing was rough because we got the first round of reviews. If we'd gone, if we had flown the first time, yeah. you would have been in Tucson. You would have been a postdoc. Uh, been great. Yep. Although I have to, I have to say, probably you know, especially watching where your career has gone, um, continuing to do EEG asymmetry work with your graduate advisor would not have put you on the same career path as you have now. Not saying it would. Just right. saying I'd have had more. Beer and tacos. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> we would have had a good time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, you not being the postdoc meant that, you know, there were all kinds of graduate students who got hired on that project for years. Yeah. And then when it was time for a postdoc, we had Dave Towers. Well, he was still, I guess he was ABD. Yeah. And then Jenny Stewart. Yeah. So, you know, you're, we're getting it a little too late so that you couldn't be a paid component of it meant no. that a lot of other very a lot good of people, people got yeah, involved. Yeah, no, it was great. Yeah. It was great. And it wound up being a big... Uh, it's a wonderful source of great stuff. Yeah. I mean, you it's know, a data set years. we continue to go back to, yeah. as you know. Yeah. And, and it's the perfect data set to answer methodological questions with. Yep. So I came to Virginia shaken in, in my boots because I was still really nervous. By the time I started, we hadn't analyzed those. those we didn't we know didn't the results. We didn't have all those data yet. Yeah. I was still terrified of EEG asymmetry and EEG in general almost in, at that point because I'd put so, because to me, EEG was so synonymous with EEG asymmetry. Yes. But, you know, I would say that given what we ultimately found with that study, I feel okay about EEG asymmetry these days. Yeah. We have this saying in, in my lab, and, and it's only become a saying because I say it so often that my students make fun of me 
the phenomenon is real. Uh huh. Because <laughs> I don't want to go any further unless the thing that happens right. with the measuring device is itself real. Right. And so I'm I'm sort of <clears throat> convinced that EEG asymmetry is real, and that yeah. is fascinating to me on so many levels. One, it's gratifying to know that that all that time wasn't wasted. But there's this meta scientific question now that's so that's so you know, pertinent to so many of the, the discussions, the, the battles that are happening in science right. these days. Using some of the heuristics that are now actively in, in play, I mean, we sh- we, a lot of people, we should have just stopped a long time ago. The, these people would say so. Yes. They would say so. And I they think that's say, a there's not, there's not enough bad idea. evidence there. Right, right. You know, Lee had his thing, Lee Seacrest had this thing he always used to, to say. It's, you know, you should never let your data interfere too much with your with your theory. <laughs> I, and, le- and I learned that, I learned that, that from to, Richard DePew in graduate is that school. Right? Yeah. That just to blow my mind because he was a he was a he was a very empirically minded sort of cranky methodologist yeah. guy. And and really what he meant was that often the data is just not good enough and your theory's yeah. better. And at heart, he's really... Your t- measurement he, is He's talking, before they were devised, of Bayesian statistics yeah, right. significance yeah. testing, yeah. right? You've got a whole body of theoretical and empirical data, and, you know, one set of new data shouldn't completely overturn that. Yes. Right? That doesn't right. change the overall probability. I still think that as a, as a, as a broad problem in our field, we don't, we don't understand theory. We don't know how to talk about theory. We don't know how to train. We don't have a, a path to, right. to generating, but I think that's still something that, that, that's lacking. And it was sort of something that I really struggled with and grappled with as a graduate mm-hmm. student and, and mm-hmm. since then. Yeah. Because frontal EEG asymmetry has, has had this like arc, mm-hmm. uh, this narrative arc. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like these troubled times and then yeah. it's really... But it, but it comes sort of, through. But, you know, I guess we could have asked the question back then. If, so let, let's say that the, the current zeitgeist of, you know, questioning the replicability of research were in place and it were now... 1998, when the paper from Derek Hageman came out and the paper that, you know, Reed, Duke, and Allen came out. And so we have two published failures to replicate. Um, and yet, you know, there's also a body of research in both infants and adults, both temperament and psychopathology, that says there's some signal there. Yeah. That doesn't mean we should just stop cold. You know, it says, okay, the overall probability of this model being true has decreased somewhat. Now, how yep. much has it decreased? It depends on the sample size. It depends on the body of literature that preceded it. I mean, I think it it, yeah, it certainly right. sent shockwaves, you know, into confidence of people like you and me yep. about whether... And maybe that's the appropriate response, right? The, you know, the shockwaves are appropriate, yeah. giving up, not necessarily appropriate, but it becomes a viable option. Right. I mean, that crisis of confidence motivated people like Derek, along with Evald Nauman at yep, Trier, right. right? Evald plays great. a huge role he's in this, terrific. actually. Yeah, yeah. He, he's a, he is a methodological he's a powerhouse. precision man. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if he ever met Lee Seacrest, but they would have been yeah. they would have been on the same page. Yeah. Anyway, you know, so Derek went down this pathway of investigating the psychometric properties. We went down the pathway of investigating the psychometric properties, Essentially to say, all right, so how much of this could just be due to having a poor measure and how can we improve this measure yep. in terms of its psychometric properties? And now we have a better sense that it's about 60% trait, but that's a whole lot of variance that you know could move around for reasons that we don't fully understand. So we started asking, you know, we backed up from the enticing theoretical approach yeah, the, with yay, this model. Is what yeah. it is. That's right. Let's, Let's approach with our left front <laughs> asymmetry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. To, to say, hold on. Are hold you on. an approach oriented person yeah. or a withdrawal oriented person? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Did you put that in Cosmopolitan? Yeah. Uh, I don't think that one made it to Cosmo. <laughs> 
So I think that was a good thing for the field. Yeah. There was a little bit of you know questioning, and then we've continued on. You know what I haven't seen yet, and what I'd like to see. You know, we've now published several papers. Um, as you know, we've we've done the paper from the GEG study. Yep. You know, where um, when we did that, we found the current source density transformation. Yeah, that whole thing. And, you is know, super d- interesting. I have to credit Derek Hageman was uh, a step ahead on that. He published you know the importance of you know the problem of reflected alpha, also back when he talked about the replication failures. And um, you know, we kind of came a little later to the game, but. You know, in our 2010 paper with Jenny, you know, we found yeah. the CSD that effects, seems and and then every promise. paper we've looked at after that with different tests, different tasks, different models, we continue to use CSD, and it seems like a fairly robust. Well, effect. and now you got now I feel like you you more than more than anyone. I mean, I know I know that there are many more people now doing it than mm-hmm. than than I was first starting to do this research with you, and certainly when you were first starting, you know, it's it's all over the place. I can't keep up with the yeah. the, the literature. Very easily. I'm mean, gonna try. That's a that's a common problem in our field. Yeah. In the scientific field generally with the proliferation yeah, that's of journals. Right. Yeah. But the but the but the main <clears throat> thing is that since the narrative arc with the, the measures become recently so satisfying to me because now it's really less about is it a thing, is the phenomenon real? Right. And more about what's causing what is it, the phenomenon. How how do we pack it apart? What does it really mean in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, when you take it from the neurophysiological to the psychological levels and you know these are really this is these are wonderful questions because you don't have that sort of dark horrible doubt about whether any of those other questions are even worth asking right now i think we've we've crossed that threshold and that's something for psychophysiology it is that's a big deal yeah but you remind me you know um i'd given many professional talks but until my presidential address for spr in 2009 I'd never given an EEJ symmetry-based full-length colloquium-length talk. Really? I'd only given short conference presentation kinds of talks. And it's because when I had talks to give, I thought about, you know, what what do I feel most confident about telling the story for? Uh, Because, you know, giving a talk, yeah, you can review the research. And at those earlier junctions, I could say, you know, there's a few questions here. And we did some methodological work and we investigated reliability and... But I didn't have an answer. Yeah. And of course, you never have the answer, but right. I didn't have enough of an answer to know what to tell people in a big talk like that. Oh, man. And what I, what I encouraged them at the end of the talk in 2009, uh, it was through the metaphor of time and space, which always works well, was yeah. to join me in a more precise temporal and spatial examination of frontal EJ symmetry. What, I, what I've been calling the narrative arc. Yes. Yeah. That's great because you really there is really a story here, and and I love the measure, not only just for what it is, but for that story. There, there's a much broader scientific story. There's there's pedagogy right. built right. into this story. When you think about the kinds of signal that astronomers are able to discern, and it's based on theory, there's yeah. a whole bunch of noise, and they've got a tiny signal. Yeah, yeah. And they make sense of it. And I think asymmetry is the same way. We, we didn't have quite the right theory, and I don't think we still do to know exactly what that yeah, signal no. is we're looking for. Yeah. But there's a signal there, and it keeps emerging strongly We're enough, hacking away at right? it. Yeah. And hopefully the right manipulations and the right methodological approaches will hone in on what that signal is. And I think a big piece of that is triangulating using other methodologies to try to say, okay, this, this exists in the EEG frequency domain of alpha world. Yeah. Does it exist in the bold signal world? Right. Does it exist in the time frequency domain? Well, but, man, you know. I'll tell you what. You, you guys are really leading the way, in my estimation. Everybody should be watching you for this kind of stuff. You're not 
shy about doing things that are outside the comfort zone of a lot of people. You know, like the, mm-hmm. the acupuncture study, right. for example. But you're also, you don't compromise your methodological values at any step. It's mm-hmm. a perfect combination. And I have to say, this is what has attracted me to psychophysiology from the get-go. It's the way to take an exacting operationalization of something that seems a bit ethereal. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. And you get to study funky, interesting things Amen in a, in a that. way that's careful. You got yeah. it. All right, man. Well, thanks right. hey, for this the... Is, this is a lot of fun. Was this fun? This, this was, was good. Fun. I enjoyed this too. It's a little like click and clack. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Kick and clack the EEGA symmetry brothers. All right. You know, at least from the outside, scientific research seems like something that not only takes accuracy, but anxiety. There's a real fear of being wrong. There's a lot of pressure to make sure that the scope of your research is going to yield positive results. There is that pressure. And it's kind of unfortunate because the pressure really comes from kind of the economics of how science is done. The competition for grants and grant funding that has steadily declined over the last several decades to the point where, you know, it's, it's like a mad scramble to get all these things. But at the same time, you're working in a space that is, by definition, devoid of clear answers. That's why you're doing the work. So you are wandering around in the dark trying to persuade funding agencies that this particular dark room is the one they should be letting you wander around in. Well, it seems really unfortunate because you can learn a lot from a negative result. You know, if something totally doesn't work, that's not to say that you aren't learning tons of stuff through that. Unquestionably. In fact, there's a saying, when you've gotten a positive result, you've basically just added a new piece of data to your data set. Right. But when you get a negative result, you've made a discovery. So there's a very real sense in which negative results or failed hypotheses, that's the real stuff. That's where real progress happens. The problem is that it feels crummy well, it because opens you're up, wrong. It opens up so many more questions, which is intimidating. That's right. And it also, and I can't emphasize this enough, makes you feel like an idiot. <laughs> for a little bit of time. Uh, You know, when some of the failed hypotheses that I've made have made me feel so dumb that I've felt like I needed to just quit. You know, you got to build up some calluses. Right. And there's a lot of scientific ideas that when they're first introduced are looked at as ridiculous by other people in the field. Uh, We'll hear a little bit about that in our next episode in two weeks, where you have Peter Sterling on. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Peter Sterling is one of the world's great neuroscientists. A lot of what we know about the, the neuroscience of the eye, for example, comes from his original laboratory work at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. But Peter Sterling has also got this fascinating personal story of political activism and engagement in communities that has found its way into the science that he does in, in ways that are truly unique. And he has been able to integrate so many different fields to understand 
some of the problems that we all see right in front of our noses every day in our communities, in our country, in ways that, that other scientists can only sort of scratch their heads and marvel at, including me. Almost nobody has been more influential on my own work than Peter Sterling. Sounds great. Folks, the music of Circle of Willis is written and performed by Tom Stoffer and his band, The New Drakes. For more information on how to purchase their music on our website, go to circleofwillispodcast.com. You can also find all of the older episodes on the website. If you haven't already, subscribe to Circle of Willis wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for more updates. Circle of Willis, human stories of the science that shapes our world. <laughs>